There's a man who uh, was having a hard time getting up on Sunday morning uh, when his wife kind of shouted back at him in the bedroom, get up, it's time to get ready for church. Maybe that happened at your house once or twice. Well, he kind of grumbled and he replied grumpily, I don't want to go to church today. I mean, the people at church don't like me. I don't want to go. She said, you have to go. And he said, give me three good reasons why I need to go to church today. She said, because it's Sunday. Number two, I'm your wife. And number three, you're the pastor. (laughs) Now get up. Well, as we come to this message today, I, I... Part of me wants to say I would have preferred staying in bed. But then I got to think, Malachi, I wonder if the prophet Malachi, when he found out what God wanted him to say to these people, whether he would prefer to have stayed between the sheets rather than share what he's going to share. Well, the opening verse is packed full of all kinds of information that's going to give us the framework for our study together. And that first verse, it talks about the oracle of, uh, what, what the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. We need to kind of break that p- apart because uh, Anthony was one of the first people said I, he couldn't find verse 1 when he went to print it on the screen. But then when he got there, it was like, so what's an oracle? Well, Anthony, this is for you. An oracle is a burden. It's a burden. Uh, Webster says it's something carried that's difficult to bear. It has the idea of something heavy, a real load to be carried. And so the words that follow Malachi are not light words. They're not trivial on what he's going to write in these chapters, but they are weighty, they're substantial, they're harsh in a way. Uh, And the prophet realizes that what he's about to communicate with the people uh, is not fluffy stuff uh, that's going to just tickle their ears, but this is going to trouble some souls. And when I thought about that, I thought, oh, man, it's a whole lot nicer to go to church and have the pastor kind of tickle your ears a little bit. Uh, the last thing you really want to do is show up at church and have him trouble your soul. Sorry, <laughs> but that's probably where we're all going to go today. And maybe that's how it should be when we come to the word of God. Uh, for example, this is Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. It says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. I mean, God's word is not always fluffy and puffy. It can be pretty direct. And so as we go through Malachi in these next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to allow the burden of each section of Scripture filter through my life first. And I've been doing this for a couple of weeks, and I've got to tell you that more I work through this book and specific verses, it is a burden. And it's not a burden that... Somebody can't really care, but it's stuff that you need to address sometimes in your own life and feel compelled like Malachi to go ahead and share it with other people. Uh, But I pray that you'd also commit to do the same, that as we we go through with some pretty weighty stuff, that you'll allow God to do his work in you through the word. And if you do, I think you're going to find out that there's some pretty challenging truths in this book to, to think about. And at its core... Uh, While sometimes it doesn't seem like this, this is actually a love letter to the church. It's a love letter to a bunch of people who've gone wrong in their lives, and God says, I want you back. I want you back. Well, the second phrase in that verse is the word of the Lord. 
And these words are not just the musings of Malachi. It wasn't that he woke up one morning and said, I just need to go shout at the people in, in the streets. But rather, this was the revelation of Jehovah, the God of the covenant. God always has a word for us today. Uh, he had something that he wanted to communicate to his people 2,400 years ago. And I think he still wants to communicate with his people today through his word. And that's kind of the beauty of scripture. As I, I, I go back through it, it's like... It would be easy to say, well, Malachi was talking to a bunch of stiff-necked, uncircumcised clowns back a long time ago. This has got nothing to do with me. Uh, The Hebrew response to that is, ha! (laughs) It has something to do with us, as does all of God's Word. I mean, that's the beauty of Scripture. Here's Hebrews 4.12. says, God's Word is what? Living and active. It doesn't just lay there passive on the the page. Or 2 Peter uh, 1, he said, uh, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. In other words, some guy just come up one day and said, I'm going to start talking. No, he got it from above. He says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by what? The Holy Spirit. Now, while the word of the Lord is heavy, notice that it is written not against Israel. It's written to Israel. And that's a big difference here. God is not out to blast these people through the prophet through the prophet Malachi. And in no way do I want you to think that I'm here today to blast you people uh, and, and speak against you, but rather to talk to you, uh, to share with you that what God wants to do with us always is to bless us and to bring us back from whatever is troubling us or causing us to feel a little bit separated from God at different times. So in order to do that this morning, I'm going to go in all kinds of different directions. I kind of apologize for that. It's just kind of the way it all came out. But I'm going to give you a brief survey of the Old Testament uh, history so we can better place Malachi in the context. You got a little bit of it from the Bible Project. But you go back to Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, you got the story of where God calls a man by the name of Abram to leave Ur, uh, Ur of the Chaldees, which was located in modern-day Iraq, and uh, told him to follow to another land. And as you recall, that when he got here, he got a new name. Now he's Abraham, and Abraham obeyed. His descendants multiplied. Uh, the Israelites were later enslaved in Egypt for many years until God uses Moses to bring them out. Uh, uh, eventually, they're allowed to enter the land. You probably know the story, led by Joshua. When Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and crossed, uh, they got into the new land. Uh, Hundreds of years passed, and the nation experienced struggles. They experienced faithlessness. They wrestled with God constantly. You would have thought they would have been a happy, clappy bunch to be out out of slavery, but they weren't. But the high point of Israel's history did not come until a man by the name of David became king. And so for about 40 years, things were pretty good because David extended the kingdom and he also extended the word of God back into people's lives. But things went rapidly south when David dies. Uh, After his son Absalom, who married all of these foreign women, uh, did all that kind of stuff, Israel split. And so now you have the northern kingdom, which is ten tribes called Israel, and you got two tribes down in the south, which are called Judah. And again, because of their disobedience, what happens? The Assyrians conquer Israel, and these ten clans 
rather than haul these ten clans back to their country, they decide to disperse them all over the known world so they become the lost tribes of Israel. Now, even though the southern kingdom saw this, they continued to rebel against God. Now, you would, you would think that if we saw suddenly uh, foreign countries come and invade and take over Canada, Mexico, most of South America, I think we in the United States would be looking around and go, are we next? Are we next? We better change. Well, they didn't change. They just kept going. Now, we move ahead to 556, 586. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar with the Babylonians, that's modern-day Iraq again, they come and conquer all of these Jews one more time. Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are knocked down. Uh, the temple was burned, and they haul all the people back to Babylon. And so God's prophets had predicted this. They, they basically said over and over, if you don't change your ways, your country may fall. I heard that from Nancy this morning as she was listening to somebody on the radio. I have no idea who he was who basically was saying, if the United States doesn't change its ways, we might be in real deep weeds. I'm paraphrasing him. It could happen. It could happen. And so uh, the last three books of the Old Testament, which you all know from memory, you've read many times, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And you're going, say that again? <laughs> Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah. Uh, were all written after they returned from captivity. Jeremiah 29.10 says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So they're off in captivity for this period of time. You would think they would change their, their mind, that they would change their actions after having to live in that concept. They come back, but guess what? Um, it doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. Um, well, these three books were written about it, and there were at least three groups of people who came back at different times, leaving at different times. You've got uh, Zerubbabel. You can say that two or three times fast to see if you can get that out. Zerubbabel uh, led the first assembly under the guy Haggai, the prophet. Uh, they laid the foundation of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was then completed under a guy's name who is Zechariah. And then Ezra, the priest, came along, led another group back from Babylon. And then finally you got another guy you may have heard of, Nehemiah. You know, he's one of the shortest people in the Bible, Nehemiah, um, who led the people to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And then God chooses to bring his message through a man named Malachi, whose name means my messenger. Now that brings us kind of all the way up to date why all of this is happening. Now we don't know much about him. I mean, he did, the guy who did Bible Project didn't talk a whole lot. We don't know much about him except to say that God raised him up for a specific purpose. And uh, if people, people have asked me, what are you doing pastoring a church at your age? And I said, well, obviously God had an idea. And it's the same kind of thing, that God lifts people up for specific purposes at different times. And it doesn't make a difference whether you're a young pup like Bo. Let's see, I'll pick another old person. No. <laughs> or whether you're an old geezer like me. You know, if God has a plan, he's going to use you to accomplish his plan, whatever that may be. God's people were disappointed. They were discouraged when they got back. Uh, they, they had 
returned to the promised land. They'd rebuilt Jerusalem. They'd planted crops. They reconstructed the temple. But life, just plain simple, was not going very well in Jerusalem. Uh, Their zeal for coming back had kind of dwindled. Their faith had turned into empty formalism. Uh, Their spirituality was sloppy and indifferent. Their religion was ritualistic and hollow. They just kind of went through the motions without any emotions. And you could say they were lazy, lax, and lenient, excusing uh, their exploits while accusing God of some pretty nasty stuff. This is where Malachi comes on the stage. And Malachi teaches us what can happen when we slide spiritually. Now, some of you may have had a time in your life when you have slidden spiritually. You sort of drifted away, only to return. Well, you know, sometimes we become apathetic against the Lord, and sometimes we justify our own behavior. I don't know. Anybody else do that? I know I do it from time to time. I justify my behavior, even though I know what the commandments say, even though I know what the Word of God says. Anybody here ever get grumpy and lose their temper with a spouse? Well, there's a slight drift. Now, don't be poking people. Uh, <laughs> but they'd stopped going to worship, and those who did were just giving God their leftovers. Uh, their lips kind of formed the prayers. Uh, but their hearts were hard. They blamed God for everything, and they blamed themselves for nothing. And so Malachi's mandate here was to call these people back to a vibrant relationship with the living Lord. And again, I'm going to talk, this is the personal part. I think this is God putting me in this book to call me back to a renewed, I don't know, a renewed respect for God. It's not like I've lost it. But I also know that I can drift away from it. All of us can do that. And maybe it's time for all of us to have a, we need to kind of step back and have a renewed invigoration of who God really is and what God really wants to do, not only in our personal lives, but let's say even in the life of restore churches worldwide. So Malachi's mandate here to call the people back, the problem was like ours. It's not ignorance. It's indifferent. Sometimes we just don't care all that much. And so this book lets us in on this dialogue. And and as you saw in this little video before, Malachi tackles about seven different topics here uh, by first making a divine declaration that's followed by a question, which is then uh, followed by this complaint of the people. And then it's always introduced by this word, how. Now, the format of Malachi 1-2, since I'm teaching Bible class, I did this a couple weeks at First Baptist, Uh, This is called didactic dialectic. You all going to remember that one? (laughs) Well, a didactic dialectic is a a Hebrew way of having a conversation. And it it goes this way. God makes a declaration. Now, what was his declaration? He says, I have loved you. The question of the complaint comes next, and the people go, how have you loved us? We don't see it. And then God responds by saying, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I love Jacob. Now, I love how verse 2 of our text begins. Uh, instead of lamenting or lambasting his people, God declares his love. I have loved you, says the Lord. He doesn't say, You're a bunch of guilty, evil, wicked, bad, nasty sinners. Instead, he starts with coming back to a relationship. God has a love relationship with you 
in me. Kind of sang that already this morning in a roundabout way. And this word love here is in the perfect tense, indicating that God not only loved these people in the past, but he also loves them in the present as well. Now, it would be like, like looking at a spouse and say, look, uh, I have loved you and I still do love you. Get over it. <laughs> and that's kind of what God is saying here. And he chooses the word love here, and it's not the typical Old Testament term that describes tough love or covenant love. The word God uses here is much more relational. It's more like, I have embraced you. My arms are around you. I've expressed my affection for you. That's what God is saying. Can you picture God doing that? Wanting to give you a big hug and say, I just love you so much, I just want to hang on and give you a big squeeze. Now, sometimes we artificially separate uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I was taught this a long time ago. The Old Testament is what? Law. All that is is law. In the New Testament, oh, thank goodness, we got all the gospel. Now we got all about love. But you need to remember that God's love has been there since Genesis 1. It's part of his character. And because God is love, I think that's in the, it says that in the New Testament, it means that from the very beginning, in the beginning, God, his love has to permeate all the way through 66 books of the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Isaiah 43. So to show you that it's not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight because I love you. Jeremiah 31, 3. I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with an unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Or Zephaniah. You all know that. You've all read that book, haven't you? Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, could you imagine God holding you in his arms and singing a love song. That's what he's saying here. That's pretty special. So, what does it mean that God loves us? Now, we say that, you know, God, you know God is love. Okay, what does it mean? I'm going to talk about three aspects of this love. The first one of these is that his love is sovereign. We need to understand that. In other words, he chooses to love us. Before time began, he already chose Jeff. Already chose, already. Already chose that. Bill, chose you before time. I think that's, it's just there. He chooses to love us. Uh, Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The second thing is God's love is unconditional. You can't do anything to get God to stop loving you. I think I've tried a few times in my many years of trying to figure out how to make God stop caring. I don't think I said that intentionally. But, well, you know, we've done nothing to deserve love. And he's committed to us, even when we mess up. Uh, some of you may remember a book um, written by Philip Yancey. It was called, What's So Amazing About Grace? 
And in that book, he said, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. And I know that to be true, because we'll get to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Okay. Well, we also know that his love is personal. I'll give you a personal, not a personal illustration of me, but from another Christian pastor and author, Max Lucado. Uh, he put it this way, you know, if God had a refrigerator, first of all, I can't picture God having a refrigerator, but if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Uh, you are valuable because you exist, not because of what you do or what you've done, you, but simply because you are. And just think about the pictures you may have on your own refrigerator, maybe grandkids, maybe your kids, special people in your life, and you look at them and you say, I put the, I'm not going to put pictures up of people I don't like. <laughs> yeah, your picture is on God's refrigerator. Well, let's go to part part one here. This is in in verse two. Love is disputed. I think that's the next topic I'm going to get to. Love is disputed. Uh, in light of God's love, it seems pretty audacious when you think about it. Pretty rude to even question God's commitment to us. And yet, that's what happened when they said, "But you asked, how have you loved us?" I mean, they wondered why they had to struggle so much. You ever done that? I mean, Ezekiel 34 said the land would abound with miraculous fruitness. Instead, they, they were dealing with a drought. Isaiah 16.5 prophesied the population would swell to a mighty throng and all nations would come and serve them. Yet they were a small little group of people and still under the power of Persia. See, what they didn't realize and what they had forgotten was what the prophet Haggai had said. He said, it's out of your disobedience that's keeping you from God's blessings. I've had people ask me, how come you seem to have more blessings than I do? Well, I don't know if I have a really good answer for that. and I don't think I'd ever put it this way because I listen to God and obey God more than you. I'm not, I'd hate to say that, but maybe that's the truth. But then again, God blesses who he wants to bless, and he will bless you in the way that he wants to bless you. My blessings are not the same as Jeff's. Jeff's blessings are not the same as Ed's. He chooses to bless us any way he wants to bless us. That's pretty powerful. See, what they didn't realize and what they forgot was what Haggai said, it's your, your disobedience keeps it. See, the people thought they were just complaining to Malachi, but they weren't complaining to Malachi. Uh, they were demonstrating their utter disbelief in God. And, and they thought they could get away with it. You ever done that? Complain to somebody else about God? And thinking if you, if you told Artie about Man, well, God doesn't, that God's not hearing that? See, now before we get too tough on these people, I don't want to beat up these people. If we get too tough, we need to remember we do the same thing. When we get when things get tough in our life, when somebody hurts us, uh, when we get sick, um, when somebody dies, when uh, things don't go as they were planned, it's easy to question God's love. Uh, when we're all wiped out, uh, sometimes we wonder whether God even cares about us anymore. Basically, they're saying God. We don't think you love us, because if you did, we wouldn't be struggling so much. I could picture some of us in this last week, well, God, if you really loved us, you wouldn't have taken down the trees on my property. 
God, if you really loved us, your garage door wouldn't go off the track. That happened to us yesterday. God, if you really loved us, how long were we without electricity, Anthony? 30 hours. 30 hours. If you really loved us, we, we kind of do some of those things. Now, you say maybe you don't really say that stuff out loud. But it's kind of like, Lord, uh, what have you done for me lately? But what they were doing is they were attacking God's central attribute. And that central attribute of love. See, God's love for us has always been a burden to him because of our rebellious nature. Uh, it's hardness of heart. It's ingratitude. I mean, he, he has every right to pronounce judgment on their and also on our lack of faith at different times. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives them a two-part history lesson to demonstrate his love. And that's what we're going to look at in that two-part history lesson. See, how long do we have yet today? Okay, part two, love is demonstrated. Look at the last part of verses 2 through 4. God's answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I'll come back to that. Praise your prayer. What? God hates people? I have turned his mountains into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, by the way, those are the descendants of Esau, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of our Lord. Now, I got to tell you, we don't really have a lot of time this morning to go into a detailed description of the relationship between Jacob and Esau, but I'm going to hit a few highlights. If you go back, you can read this story in Genesis 25. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah gets pregnant with twins, and the twins are wrestling with each other and fighting in the womb, and and Rebecca wants to know why this ha- is happening. And so what does she do? She goes to the Lord and say, Why, Lord, have you given me babies that are fighting already before they're even born? And God's response in Genesis 25 is this. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So right here... God is establishing that even before these little babies are going to be born, the younger one would be exalted in order to promote God's purposes. And he could just as easily have done the same thing to Esau over Jacob. They were twins. Esau was born first, which means he had all the customary rights and privileges and all that kind of stuff. He could have been the main heir of his father's blessing. But God... But God chose Jacob, and because he did, the people in Malachi's day were chosen as well. That's what he's saying to them. And remember this, God always chooses. And he chooses to accomplish his purposes, whether we understand them or not. Uh, Those he chooses, he also protects. Their very existence was evidence of God's love. Now, I think a lot of people, when they get into this, what you heard read before by Lair, they struggle with that little phrase in verse 3, but Esau, I have hated people stumble what do you mean God hates people well here's a few things to remember that might help you understand this in his heart Jacob hungered after God even though he was a schemer I mean I'm not saying Jacob was a goody two-shoes he he dabbled in some sin too but he he matured in his faith he grew to trust God Esau on the other hand from his birth could have cared less about God, even to the point of selling his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup. In the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. It says, See that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. See, now, you got to understand that, I, I don't care what commentary you look at, these words, love and hate, commentators will tell you, they need to work in kind of a relative sense. See, in the Hebrew idiom, we've got to go back, because this, this is Hebrew written here, this is not English today, but back in the Old Testament Hebrew, if a father had two sons, and he gave one the inheritance, it was said that he loved that one, and he hated the other. That's Hebrew understanding. See, God loved Jacob so much that in comparison, it seemed as if he hated Esau, or the better way we would translate it, they loved him less. Now, you may recall, Jesus says much the same thing about our relationship with following him. I don't know if you remember these things. Um, in Luke 14, 26, he said, in order to be his disciples, we must do what? Hate who? Our family and ourselves. Wow. He's not saying that we should actively hate family members, but that we should, what? Love them less than we do God. Matthew 10 says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me, Jesus is saying, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So we can't accuse God of any injustice here. This love-hate relationship or this contrast is used to illustrate God's sovereign choices. And we can't get away from the biblical doctrine that he, he chooses people. At the beginning of time, he knew what was going to happen. Paul actually quotes Malachi 1 in, in the book of Romans. He said, yet before the twins were born and had anything done, anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in choosing might stand, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on those whom I have compassion. That's God's love. Well, the third point here is how love is diffused. See, God declares his love, and then he demonstrates it. And when he does, we sometimes dispute his devotion. He kind of goes out of his way to let you know how much um, he loves us, and yet he doesn't want us to keep that love to ourselves. Verse 5, it says, You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Yeah, you want to know how I love you? Let me tell you. And by the way, once you figure out what, how, what God feels about you, share that somewhere else. Well, the question is, how does one respond to this? How does one respond to the love of God? I think there's something about love that just urges people to respond. Uh, maybe some of you, and I can't re I'm not reading anything into any people in particular. I, I don't have that ability. But I'm sure that all of us, at some point in our lives, have probably blamed God for some pretty tough stuff that's happened to you. Um, maybe you aren't sure sometimes that God really loves you. Maybe you've been to that point. Well, if you've ever been that way, if you wonder, I wonder if God really does love me, uh, maybe you need to do like King David did. 
King David in Psalm 13 starts by being brutally honest. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's where David was at one point in his life. And prayerfully, none of us are at that place right now where we're really filled with questions and complaints about our relationship with God. But I would tell you today, I would encourage you, if that's the way you do feel today, don't stay there. Don't stay there. You know, it's always kind of like taking a step towards love. That's what David did, because you know David starts out in Psalm 13 when he says, Will you forget me forever? He goes on and he says, Okay, I kind of feel like there's been times where you forgot me forever. I felt like sometimes you've hidden your face from me forever. And then he says, in the next verse, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Think we should go on next week in Malachi? Some of you are wondering, but we will. We'll press on.